This is They Create Worlds, episode 47, Vestiges of Atari. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, now we've done it. Four episodes on Atari. That's right. A big four-part extravaganza. And you thought we were crazy when we did the video game crash. (laughs) Yeah, I really was thinking we'd get this done in three, which was naive. That was very naive. It's just such a huge topic, even though we're only talking about really a decade's worth of time. I mean, we've done a few companies now. Sometimes we go two parts. Sometimes we do them in one part, but we've done several companies that have existed for two decades or more, like Origin, Sierra, etc., and got them done in one or two episodes. But it's just, even though Atari was only around in its original form for just over a decade, 72 to 84, it was so central, and there was so much going on with all those different divisions that it just takes a long time to get through it all, quite frankly. Yeah, and we've talked so much about Atari I've mentioned the crash. That's three episodes on Atari. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the Atari brand. That was at least two parts, if I remember right. It was just one. It was just one? I mean, we've talked about Atari a lot. And there's obviously more we can do, because, I mean, we did the big brand overview episode of Atari, but there's a lot more that you can dig into on Jack Trammell's Atari Corporation, on Atari Games, the arcade successor on the French Atari, Infogram, and all that history. Obviously, we're not going (laughs) to cover all of that in this. This is part four of our strict look at Syzygy Atari up to the end of its original form in 1984 when it was cut to pieces, as we talked about in the Atari brand episode. But the point is, we could even do three or four or more (laughs) episodes on Atari even after this. (laughs) So unless one of us dies, you're probably going to hear from us a few times. Yeah, I think I think Atari may may come back, but but this four part extravaganza will be at least the fairly definitive overview of what happened to the company from its founding to its breakup in that July nineteen eighty four period. Well, let's continue where we left off. We don't have any more of that Nolan Bushnell character. Long gone. We don't have a lot of people that we may really associate with Atari. We have this Ray Kassar person. We do. Who you've interviewed. I have. And who, as we said, gets a bad rap that isn't entirely deserved. He didn't do a good job always of delegating to subordinates and letting the team kind of form to take Atari to the next level. But on the other hand, Atari became a $2 billion company under his watch. And that doesn't happen by accident. No, it does not. So... He really exemplifies bringing Atari to its height, even though he presided a bit over its decline. He did. I mean, you have to give him credit for the good and the bad, because even though he was the guy that built it to a $2 billion company, he's also the guy that on whose watch get lost in a single year over $500 million, which, of course, is the period of time that we will very shortly be starting to discuss. We've also talked a bit about how you can't just lay all the blame at management. 
you can't lay all the blame at the feet of engineering and developers. Mm -hmm. There's some equal partnership there. And you can't even lay the blame entirely at Atari. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's something that really surprised me when we've discussed this privately and as things have been developing here. It's really not just bad decisions that Atari made. It's the fact that they were hamstrung by their parent company, Warner Communications. And really, I want to lay at least half, if not more, the blame at Warner's feet. Absolutely. I mean, they definitely deserve a degree of the blame as well. It's funny, they kind of deserve the blame kind of both ways. They both weren't watching it closely enough, but then at other times were also meddling in it too much. They left a lot of the detail alone and let Ray Kassar handle a lot of that. He wasn't meddled with so much on a day-to-day basis. But as Atari became more and more of Warner's profits, I believe we said in the last episode that at their height, they were 65% of Warner Communications' profits. This is the big, major conglomerate. You're talking about a company that is still an icon today, even though they bought out time and it's Time Warner Cable Mm -hmm. now and so on and so forth. It's still a major, major company, even at that time. And 65% of its money generating business is this little video game company, Atari, off in the winds. And once they start having problems, they go, we need to make sure that doesn't fail. (laughs) Exactly. And even before it starts having problems, they have to make sure that it keeps doing so well because Warner Communications is a publicly traded company. The value of the company is tied up in the value of the stock. The wealth of Steve Ross and of the key principals in the office of the president, etc., are tied up in their shares of the stock. They need that stock to run, they need that stock to maintain a high price. The stock maintains a high price. If Warner consistently grows and consistently reports increased earnings, that's the way the stock market works. The stock market likes consistency and profitability. They want to see that you are continually making money, but they also want to see that you are continually growing as you make money. And Warner Communications were the masters of manipulating their profits in a way to deliver that kind of measured growth. And when I say manipulate, I don't mean in an illegal sense. What I mean is, since they're in the entertainment business, there are certain entertainment expenses that they could decide when they wanted to kind of throw them in. So if they had a bunch of write-offs on movies that didn't do so well, they could decide where in the reporting, which quarter, that they put some of that stuff. So they could kind of figure out how to parcel their earnings in such a way that they were always growing consistently and that each quarter was a new record for that period over the quarter before. So that first quarter 81 is stronger than first quarter 80. First quarter 82 is stronger than first quarter 81. This was the Warner way of doing business. So even though they were in a very volatile industry, the entertainment industry, outside of Atari, which of course is also entertainment, The big things are Warner Records and Warner Brothers movie studios. Even though they're in a volatile industry that is known for peaks and valleys, they knew how to structure earnings in a way to keep the earnings consistently growing. That's what one of the key goals 
of Steve Ross and of the Office of the President and of the CFO, etc., always was for the company. So as Atari came to be more and more of the profit, Warner had to start paying more attention to what was going on at Atari to make sure that they kept those numbers. That's going to be another thing that, that plays a role. I don't want to quite talk about that yet because we have a little bit of catching up to do before we really attack 82 in detail. Just to what you said about Warner being part of the problem, absolutely Warner was part of the problem because Atari does not exist in the vacuum. It is a subsidiary of a very, very powerful publicly traded company that has a vested interest in making sure it remains a valuable publicly traded company. And having to shoehorn Atari into that narrative that they want to present to Wall Street is really, I think, what causes a lot of those problems because they go, we want these consistent numbers. You, Ray Kassar, are going to provide those to us come hell or high water. Exactly. Atari needs to grow, and Atari needs to grow fairly significantly. And so Atari does have to be fairly aggressive in its forecasts. And it just so happens that Atari was a company that was doubling in value every year during this time period, literally doubling in value. They were growing exponentially. There was a need to keep that going, and there was pressure from Warner to keep that going. I've told you I talked to the chief financial officer of Atari, Dennis Groth. One of the things that he told me is that his comptroller for the consumer division, because he's the CFO and then he has comptrollers at the various divisions, Alan Henrik came to him and said, I don't know that we can continue these aggressive forecasts. I, I'm not sure that that's viable. It should be obvious to anyone that's paying attention at this time that the market is getting close to saturation. And that saturation level is about 30% of U.S. households, because that's about the percentage of households with children. It's still a toy at this point. You don't have many people playing video games that aren't children. Households with children are basically your measure of where you can sell into. And by 1982, they're getting right up against that 30% of American households figure, which is the dangerous figure. I've talked to people at other companies. I talked to Rich Stearns, the vice president of the uh, Consumer Electronics Division of Parker Brothers, who was responsible for their video game business when they got into it heavily in 1982 and 1983. And, you know, he told me that they're running the projections, and they know that this is headed kind of off a cliff in a way because they're nearing that saturation point. And I think Atari's people, Atari's financial people, had to kind of realize that too. They might have thought that they could push through it anyway, but they had to at least realize that they were coming up to that number. So there was some concern raised by the money people at Atari that I'm not sure we can keep these projections going at this level that we've been doing in the past. So Henrik goes to Groth, and Groth goes to Ray, and Ray says, run it up to Manny. Manny's like, no way. You bean counters just get in the way of things. He may have used some more colorful adjectives to describe the bean counters as well. Not appropriate for a podcast. <laughs> That's right. According to Dennis Groth, now, again, there's multiple sides to every story. Ray Kassar does not remember Warner necessarily pushing projections onto them aggressively. So. There's different stories. Ray Kassar, obviously, he's a little older and would have been a little less directly involved with the numbers being the CFO. So maybe his memory's a little faultier. Maybe Dennis Groth, since he was the actual money guy, remembers that better. 
Or maybe Dennis Groff is misremembering or wants to paint his financial people in a better light. So who can say what the competing agendas are around there? I will say that it's not a settled thing, but according to Dennis Groff, Manager Art would not hear of cutting projections. He wanted them to keep forecasting aggressively, and Manager Art had a vested interest in Atari growing. Steve Ross was not going to be around forever. I mean, who knew when he was going to step down, retire, die, whatever, but he was not going to be around forever. And Warner had an office of the president, as we discussed before. So you had three or four people with equal titles that just ran different parts of the business. You had the movie guy, the music guy, the video game guy, you know, all running these different divisions. And so at some point, Steve Ross isn't going to be around anymore. And at some point, someone's got to succeed him to be in charge of the whole thing. So there is a vested interest amongst these Office of the President people to make sure that their divisions are continuing to be stars. And there's no doubt that Manny Gerard wanted Atari to be the star of Warner. According to the book Master of the Game, which is a biography of Steve Ross that was written a couple decades back, uh, sources within Warner told her that Manny was very fond in the 1981 period of saying that Atari was bigger than Warner Communications. Well, that's 65% of the business. Exactly. Yes. Oh, yeah. But the important thing is that he was fond of saying it. He was fond of rubbing that in people's faces. True. You gotta figure that a guy like Manny, who's probably ambitious, you don't get to be in his position without being ambitious, I, I think that's fair to say, is going to want his portion of the business to continue to be the star because down the line, that could help him even get into a bigger position. So according to Dennis Groth, there was some concern at Atari, and Manny Gerard basically overrode those concerns and told them to keep projecting aggressively, as they always have been doing in the past. Projecting aggressively was part of what got Atari into trouble. It was not the full story, though. Just to try to put all of the blame on aggressive projections is not appropriate as well, because these projections don't come out of thin air. In part, these projections come out of what they feel they can sell and what their distribution and retail network are telling them that they can sell or telling them that they want to buy from Atari in order to sell it on to consumers. So that brings us right back to our favorite culprit that we talked about before, which is Atari's very strange and very haphazard distribution system. Hmm. We discussed before how it kind of came into being in the way it came into being because they needed to get the product to market any way they possibly could during the period when the VCS was not the real barn burner that it became later. So you have a bunch of sales reps out in the field that sometimes have competing territories. They're selling into the same markets. They're competing very strongly with each other for product, literally. According to Michael Moon, and this was not my interview with me, but this was actually, he was interviewed for this book, Master of the Game, as well. So this is Michael Moon, as told in this other book. They were stealing product from each other. If somebody had an order for half a truckload, they might come to the warehouse and try to talk their way into a full truckload. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, which takes away from some other distributor's portion of the Atari Pi, because this stuff was so supply-constrained. I mean, when it blew up, when it finally blew up after Space Invaders hit the VCS in 1980, it blew up. Nobody could get 
all of what they wanted. It was like the Wii and like the Switch is today. Nobody could get everything that they wanted. There was far more demand than could be supplied. And this wasn't artificial. Atari did not artificially depress the market. As I think I said before, they based their projections on how much they could make because they always knew that they could sell more than they could make. And so their projections were just based on what they could make. Distributors were trying all sorts of things to get all the product that they needed, whether that was ordering double what they needed, knowing that they would only get half, or stealing from each other, literally on the loading dock, or carrying the product of other companies. Because the other thing that Atari didn't figure out what to do with is that they didn't make any of their sales reps exclusive to them. Oh, dear. On video game product. Now, obviously, sales reps always carry multiple lines because one line isn't going to be enough to necessarily sustain their company. But they didn't make them exclusive distributors in regards to video games. So they have competing interests. Exactly. At the time, quite frankly, I mean, it probably just didn't occur to them. There was no such thing as a third-party developer when the VCS started. There was barely such a thing as a consumer software industry. I mean, not just talking about video games, talking about computers. At the time that Atari was starting to sell the VCS in 1977, it probably, quite frankly, never crossed their mind that it would be a problem. Let alone other competitors. Mm. So they're going up against not just Atari trying to be sold. You have Atari and the other consoles of that generation. Sure. You have ColecoVision, mm -hmm. Mattel and Intellivision. You have that all out there, and these sales reps go, well, buddy, I can only get you 50 Ataris today. But tell you what, these ColecoVisions, just as good. Sure. But the real problem was in software. Another factor, as we discussed in the crash episode that really killed Atari, is that there was just too much software out there. And we talked about how all of these fly-by-night companies came into existence. Well, a fly-by-night company, a U.S. Games, a Games by Apollo, a Frogo, I mean, all of these strange companies that came into being, well, they're not going to be able to do their own sales into the big players. They're not going to get into the Toys R Us's, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Kmarts. That's not going to happen. But there was a distribution network, a sales rep network that already existed that could not get all of the product it ever wanted or needed from Atari and was not bound exclusively to Atari. So Atari really created their own competition. I mean, when it came to Activision and the Magic, they literally created their own competition because it was programmers and salespeople from Atari that founded those companies. But they literally created the entirety of their competition. I mean, a company like Parker Brothers, who did not use manufacturers' reps, who actually did their own direct sales, a company like that would have gotten into the market anyway and would have been successful in the market because they were a big established company already. But the majority of Atari's competition was created by Atari because they created this big distribution network into retail, and then everybody else got to piggyback off of it. So it's almost like you have a four-inch pipe of distribution, and you're feeding it with a garden hose. That's exactly right, except it's more like you're feeding it with a fire hose that you haven't managed to fully pressurize. Ah, and there's other people who are willing to help with that pressure. And then suddenly, in 1982, both because of Atari projecting aggressively, but also because of all the third parties that are in the business now, 
demand and supply are finally in balance. They finally caught up. But the problem is nobody realized they had caught up. Distributors were still ordering twice what they needed, hoping to get half of it. Then they get twice what they need. Exactly. Partially because Atari is manufacturing like crazy, partially because there are now a dozen or more third parties supplying the market. Now we have a four-inch pipe feeding a three-inch pipe. (laughs) Yeah. Now we've got a problem. And it's a problem we talked about in our crash episode. I mean, distribution was so much of the problem. And a lot of that was Atari's fault because Atari never quite figured out how to handle the fact that they were no longer the only guy making the games, you know. They are no longer the single game in town. We have all these usurpers, and you don't have 100% of the pie anymore. You've got 90%, 70%. Exactly. A lot of these other companies, though, are also manufacturing too much profit. If everybody decides that they can take 5% of the market, all the little guys, and then you have 12 or 15 little guys, well, then all of these 5%, let's say you have 12 little guys, you know, all of those 5% suddenly add up to 60% of the market. Yep. And you know that all the little guys between them aren't going to take 60% of the market because Atari's still the major player with the major licenses. Atari's probably going to end up still with at least half the software market, if not more, just on the strength of their licenses and their advertising. So if all the little guys are adding up to that much of the market, they can't possibly be all of that, then that's a problem. And then, of course, Atari's not acting like they're 50% of the market. Atari's still acting like they're maybe 80% of the market. That's how, as we discussed in the crash episode, you get to 200% of market demand, which is basically what you kind of had at that point. And Atari played a role, but Atari didn't play that role all by themselves. You know, in the last episode, we talked about the haphazard distribution and how the salespeople continually wanted to get rid of the sales reps Mm -hmm. and were unable to. Right, because of social inertia within the company, and they really were such good sales reps, they could argue for their jobs. I think what really happened, I I said that I wasn't really sure what happened, why Ray Kassar was so resistant to it, but I'd forgotten, I'd read Master of the Game before, but of course I brushed up on it for this episode because it goes into a lot of the Atari collapse. Actually, Master of the Game speaks to this issue. There was pressure within Warner, so here's Warner again. Mm Mm-hmm to have Warner's distribution arm take over the Atari distribution. Because Warner is in the record business. Now, the record business is not selling into all the same places that the video game business is. But the point is, Warner already has distribution. They already have a way to get their product into retail within the organization. We don't need to have this redundancy, let alone have a redundancy that is not completely under our control. Right. The way Master of the Game paints it, is that Atari's choices, this is just master the game, other people may disagree. According to that book, Atari's choices were to keep control of its own distribution by using independent reps, or bring distribution in-house, but lose control of it to a different arm of Warner. It sounds like there wasn't really a viable way politically to bring distribution in-house and keep distribution at Atari. If you brought it within the company, you have to use company assets. Right, pre-existing company assets. At least that's how Master of the Game pictures it. Ray Kassar, not wanting to give up 
any part of his territory, any part of his fiefdom, which is understandable, basically may have resisted the move to in-house distribution, in-house selling to retail partners, because they would have paradoxically actually lost more control of the business within Atari itself if they had gone that route. Unfortunately, by keeping all of those sales reps, all they did was create a mess where they had very poor inventory control, where they didn't have the ability to track so well how much product was actually going into each part of the country, and they invited their own competition in software to hop right on board the bandwagon with them and help overheat the market. So if I were to put one cause to the Atari collapse, and there is not just one cause. But if we want to lay something that this is the primary cause. If somebody held a gun to my head and told me, give me one concise cause for Atari's collapse. Give me a second. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Tell me something. (laughs) Tell me who did it. I would say it was the distribution situation far more than any other cause. Now, the distribution situation didn't do it alone, but it's a big one. It's a really big one. Of course, as I just said, part of that distribution problem was that there were so many companies involved. And in this case, we have to go back to to the way Atari treated its programming staff because a lot of this third-party competition would have never come into existence if so many Atari VCS programmers hadn't left the company to found some of the early third parties, like Activision, the very first third party, and Imagic, which was also a big one. This is another part of the story where it gets very simplistically boiled down to marketing versus engineers, management versus programmers, Ray Kassar, being a bad person. (laughs) This is the way the narrative is usually told. Unlike some of the other narratives that we've done our very best to debunk, there is a little bit more truth in this one. But there's some mitigating factors. You have to first understand that when we look back at the Atari story and the fact that Atari was unwilling to give the programmers the compensation or recognition they felt they deserved for what they were doing, We have to understand that we are making this evaluation from the standpoint of 2017. We're making this evaluation from the standpoint of a period of time when everybody fully understands the value of software, where software in many ways has a value far greater than hardware. We're living in a world where IBM didn't dominate the computer market, Microsoft dominated the computer market. Software over hardware. Software is definitely king. That was not the case at the beginning of computer history, and it was still not really the case at the time that Atari was starting to do video games. One thing to remember is that there are some things we can see now very easily in hindsight that were not necessarily easy to see at the time. When computers were multi-million dollar systems, that were not interchangeable, not able to really talk to each other easily, did not incorporate high-level operating systems, and often did not utilize high-level programming languages. Software was the throw-in. You bought your $1 million, your $2 million, in 1950s and 60s money, by the way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and 
you got the software for that computer from the company. If you changed computers later, if you decided you needed an upgrade, or if you went crazy and decided you didn't want to use IBM anymore and you wanted to use one of its competitors that were called the Seven Dwarves because none of them had any market share to speak of, you needed all new software for that computer. And that's the thing. Computers, especially back then, the hardware dictated the software that would work on it. You didn't have something that was ubiquitously consistent across the board. Mm -hmm. We look at our own personal computers. There's a reason it's called the x86 architecture. Mm -hmm. That's because there's certain known constraints put on that. There's certain known instructions on that computer that can go, okay, I, the programmer, say I want you to load this, copy this, multiply that. Those instructions are known. The way the system is laid out is known. And whenever someone codes for it, I can take this software and it will work on any other x86 architecture. However, I can't take that same x86 architecture software and put it on an Atom, mm -hmm. which is another system architecture that's more used for phones and smaller things. It's a different architecture. That same software will not work on it. You have to change it in some way, more or less rewrite it from scratch in order to work with that specific hardware. Same thing with most consoles. They are specific hardware that needs to have specific software written to it. Mm -hmm. That's why there's all these problems with ports between the Xbox port, the PlayStation port, the Wii port, the PC port. Mm -hmm. Look at the last Batman game that had so many problems right. from porting. It's because the software, yeah, I could write some sort of engine to run whatever my game's supposed to do, but that engine still ultimately has to interact with the hardware. Mm -hmm. That hardware interaction goes, if I just design my engine to specifically take advantage of just the PlayStation, and then I try to take it over to the Xbox, and okay... The Xbox people go, oh, yeah, we know people are going to port their games over from the PlayStation. Here's what you need to change on your system in order to make it work on us. And we have some fairly specific hardware setup. Then you take that same game and you put it on the PC and it goes, oh, my, the PC, we have the x86 architecture. We have something that is a legacy of having capabilities back in the 70s and 80s moving all the way up to now it still has some of those features and there's so much variation on what that hardware can do. I don't have a specific video card that's in the Xbox or the PlayStation that's going to display my video. I could have an ATI card. I could have an NVIDIA card. I could have just the built-in thing on the processor chip. I could have something completely different. The RAM might be different. The hard drive might be different. The way the bus sizes are different. Software is really a derivative of the hardware that it is designed to run on. What they didn't really realize back then is that, or maybe they did, is that I came up with the hardware, therefore I know how the hardware works, therefore I can write the software for it, and it will work on that hardware. But because I only I know how the hardware works, no one else can sneak something on here because I'm not going to make it available for you to be able to code on this because it's my hardware. I want you to buy my hardware from me. You have people from Atari who leave and go, well, I know how that hardware works. If we just do this, this, and this, we can make some software for it. Right. 
you know, you're talking about the x86 architecture, obviously you can still have a lot of variety. Two different PCs may be very different from each other. Definitely. But they're still going to be relying on that basic underlying x86 architecture. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they're still going to be relying on a single operating system, Windows, to interpret between your software and your hardware and your peripherals and your CPU. So you can have a software industry in those circumstances. When IBM is putting out a 1401 computer as their low-end model and uh, a 7090 computer as their higher-end model, the mainframe days, and then Univac is also putting out their competing product and Control Data is putting out their competing product, none of these, even within IBM or without IBM, have anything that they can do in common. You can't be a third-party company that releases a software suite that is going to run on all of those computers. You have to build the software from scratch, completely from scratch. For each computer. For each of those computers. Software was the thing that you threw in. The company that made the hardware threw in the software. You didn't pay for it. It may be that a small fraction of that $1.5 million purchase price was factored to be the cost of the software. Or if you needed something really custom to go with that hardware, we might work with you for an extra fee in order to code that specific feature you require. Right. But companies sold hardware. They did not sell software. And so software people were just cogs in the machine. That was just starting to change. In the mid-60s, IBM released a revolutionary mainframe called the System 360. And the thing that made the 360 so revolutionary is that they built a series of five processors of varying capability. Not microprocessors, obviously. This is pre-microprocessor. But five processors that were all part of the same family and were therefore compatible across each other and therefore could all accept the same peripherals and could all accept the same software. So for the first time, there was a family of computers. This is the first time a company could say, okay, I don't need much processing power, so I will buy the lowest-end System 360. And then three years later, the company's grown. That little computer isn't enough for their needs anymore. In the past, they would not just have to buy a new computer. They'd have to buy all new peripherals. It meant buying a new printer. It meant buying new tape drives. It meant replacing everything. A major, major investment, even for a big company. Right. And you had to replace all your software. because so And it's... you had to train employees. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that. Absolutely. You think in your job, just because IT decides to upgrade Office from 2003 to 2016 and, oh God, the world's fallen because something changed. It's still more or less the same. Right. Here you're talking about, it's like going, okay, we have to upgrade the system. You're no longer on Windows. You're now on Unix. Right. Exactly. Today, you buy a new motherboard and a new processor and some new RAM maybe as well to go with it. You buy kind of those core components because you feel you need an upgrade, but you can keep your old hard drive. You can keep your old copy of Microsoft Office that you've been using for the past seven years. You can do all of that. With computers in the past, you could not do that. You got a new CPU. You got a new mainframe hub. Everything had to go out the window. Everything had to be replaced. The System 360 was the first time that you had a range of capability within the same family. 
So you could start with a small, less powerful computer that meets your needs at the time. And then if five years later you need an upgrade to something more powerful, you can actually now upgrade to another model within the System 360 family and keep your printers, keep your teletypes, keep your tape drive. There's a big drive for that. So this was what allowed the birth of both the clone hardware market and the software industry. An employee of IBM named Gene Omdahl left the company and founded a company they named after himself that built System 360 clones. Certain companies started building software that you could buy from them directly to use on your existing machines because the System 360 created a stable environment. They did uh, replace it in the 70s with the System 370, but it was a stable environment that people knew would be around for multiple years and that people would be using very widely. It just, it cornered, absolutely cornered the mainframe market. IBM was already the dominant mainframe company, but System 360 even pushed them to a whole new level. So that created a hardware standard that allowed there to be a separate software industry because you knew you could write a software program, create a database program, say, databases were big at the time, that outperformed whatever IBM's in-house people were doing And you could actually find a lot of buyers for that piece of software because they knew it would continue to be valuable to them over time because they were going to stay within the 360 family. The software industry only started really developing in the late 1960s and early 1970s. That's right before Atari is starting to do its home video games. So it's really just a 10 to 20 year old industry that by the time you get to the 80s. Yeah. And of course, in the home, even less, because the software industry doesn't really take off in the home until the Trinity appear in 1977. And the first big product, VisiCalc, appears in 1979. Well, that's after Atari is already on the software market. No technology company really in this time period of the mid-1970s really understood the value of software people. They were still largely seen as cogs in the machine. They were not seen as the drivers, the people that made the difference in your company. So we have to keep that in mind when we talk about the fact that Atari did not compensate their programmers commensurate to what value they were adding to the company. That is a true statement. I mean, there's no doubt that the programmers that founded Activision and the programmers that founded Imagic. They felt maligned. and, And deservedly so. But it wasn't necessarily, at the time, as big an oversight as it feels like in hindsight. Today, we pay programmers a lot to do the thing they do, especially if they're good at it. Back then, coder, meh, you know, better than a janitor. Right. And Atari offered competitive engineer salaries. It's not like they were grossly underpaying their engineers. It's just that no one engineers were receiving royalties or bonuses based on software. That kind of thing didn't exist yet. Microsoft didn't exist until 1975, and Microsoft was still a company of a dozen employees four years later. I mean, there were no huge software companies. The big software companies were still the mainframe guys like Informatics. Those guys were really uh, just creating things like database programs that were not sexy. So, of course, the programmers were just cogs in the machine. Nobody was going to get rich making a database program in the minds of the people then. Obviously, (laughs) people like Ashton Tate did 
very well becoming rich making database programs, but that was not the mindset pre-personal computer. Right. So we have to keep that in mind when we talk about the fact that Atari programmers did not get the compensation. There are a couple of other things to keep in mind. First of all, it would be very easy for management to downplay their role. Most of the games that they were making, especially in the early period here, were conversions of arcade games. Either direct conversions with the exact same name, or very close to mechanics appearing in arcade games, but maybe just slightly different, that, that come out under a different name, but it all came back to the arcade. Not that the arcade guys were getting huge royalties either, they weren't. But when it came to a VCS programmer, it would be very easy to see them as just guys doing a simple conversion work. They're not coming up with the games. They're just taking something that already exists and converting it into a new format. They're porters. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're more than that. But I mean, it's easy to see them from a management perspective in that way. The other thing that was unique about the VCS that made it very different from a lot of other platforms is that it was hard to program for that thing. This is a system that can only display five objects at once, plus a background. It has no frame buffer. It has no bitmap. It has 128 bytes of RAM. It was meant to play Pong and Tank. That's why it has only <laughs> four or five sprites. It was being asked to play Space Invaders and Pac-Man. There's just a few more objects on the screen in Space Invaders and Pac-Man than there are in Pong and Tank. It Especially in Space Invaders. Well, in Pac-Man, it's all the dots. <laughs> of course, yeah. It actually took someone with some mad skills to be able to program for that thing. I mean, in any field, a good programmer is worth more than a bad programmer, obviously. But, I mean, it took someone truly special to wring every last ounce of ability out of that VCS and make it play the big games of 1981 and 1982. You couldn't just hire a dozen programmers, put them on the VCS, and be guaranteed that they'd be able to come up with a half dozen good games. Quality mattered. Atari's management didn't really realize that, I don't think. A lot of this is put at the feet of Ray Kassar. Because the Activision people, they say they went to Ray Kassar and they had a meeting where they asked for a royalty program and Ray Kassar turned them down and then they left to form Activision. Of course, Ray Kassar was in charge at that time, so he bears some of the blame. It's worth noting, though, that the very first time that a bonus program was proposed was when Joe Keenan was still the president of the company, before Kassar. The programmers thought that they had a deal with Joe Keenan for a bonus program, and then it turned out they didn't. So, you know, Nolan, for all of his talk about how much he loves the engineers, and he legitimately loved them. I don't mean that he's lying about that. He loved the lab, and he loved seeing all the cool things people were coming up with. He wasn't ready to pay them any more than Ray Kassar was ready to pay them. Not back then. So it's not just clueless manager that knows nothing about technology coming in and refusing to give programmers their due. Because the Joe Keen and Nolan Bushnell administration also didn't give them that. The first VCS programmers were hired in 1977. That's when the system came out. Nolan Bushnell was in charge of the company in 77 and 78. The first games released on the system were released under that management team. 
They were just paying them standard engineer salaries. They didn't put a royalty program in place. So why are we just blaming Ray Kassar for this situation, you know, and Ray Kassar alone, when there were plenty of other managers before him that also weren't giving these programmers their recognition or compensation that they wanted? The other thing is, you know, the programmers say that they went to meet with Ray Kassar about getting bigger compensation, and Ray Kassar turned them down. Ray has often said that he doesn't remember that, and I don't think that's disingenuous. I think he probably doesn't remember it. But here's the thing. Ray Kassar at this point, I mean, 1979, okay, Atari's about a 400 million company in 79. I mean, they're not a billion dollar company yet. But still, they're a 400 million dollar company. Ray Kassar's the CEO. Michael Moon's the president of the consumer division. Steve Bristow is the VP of engineering. Then there's a software manager under him that's in charge of the programmers. Really, I mean, I understand what these four guys were trying to do. And I respect them, and I think they deserve what they were looking for, which was a royalty program somewhat akin to what a recording artist would get in the music business. But they just jumped a lot of steps in the chain of command. They went straight to the CEO. The CEO's mind isn't necessarily going to be on what the programmers want, because he's got so much of the company that he's looking after. The CEO's job is not to handle day-to-day minutiae, the employees, how the company actually run, the CEO does vision, does Mm -hmm. where do we want to take the company? I am representing the company to investors. I'm representing the company to consumers. Mm -hmm. The president's job is to deal with employees. Mm -hmm. I'm dealing with the minutia. You want to have some sort of like last stop of, okay, you want to be paid more? You go to the president. You don't go to the CEO. Right. Or you start out with the head of HR or... I mean, there are a lot of channels, and maybe they did. Maybe no one's just thought to ask any of them, was Ray Kassar your first visitor, or had you tried all the other channels first? So maybe they tried those other channels first. I mean, they, they might have done. I'm just saying, again, yes, somebody who realized that we were on the cusp of software becoming king, a visionary, as CEO, might have taken that meeting and realized, oh my gosh, These are our most valuable resource, and I can't afford to lose them. I've got to do something. I'm not saying a CEO couldn't make that decision, then the visionary CEO might have made that decision. It's not fair necessarily to expect that the person at the top of the company is going to have that vision in a time when software was not valued the way it's valued today. Did Ray Kassar make a mistake? Absolutely. Should he be held accountable for that mistake? Absolutely. That was a big part of what started to bring the company down. But is it fair to expect him to have been able to see what a big mistake he was making at the time he was making it? I really don't think so. Once Atari realized they had a problem, they implemented a royalty program. It was too late. All of the best guys were gone by then. The four Activision guys had left. A magic took most of the good programmers that were left, and then Warren Robinette left to found the learning company, Warren Robinette being the guy that did Adventure. So by the time they fixed the problem, it was, you know, shutting the barn door after the horses had already gotten out. How are they supposed to know back then that this is where things are going? Right. And I'm not saying that nobody could have figured that out. I mean, obviously, somebody could have been smarter and figured that out. I'm just saying, let's not look at this through 2017 eyes. Let's look at this through 
early 1980s eyes when nobody has quite figured out what software is going to be yet. We don't know if that is the big thing. We don't know if hardware is going to be the big thing. Everything's just evolving. Business is evolving. And Atari is growing so fast. Yeah. Atari is growing so fast that they almost don't have time to take stock of what they already have because they're always having to... I can't imagine what it must have been like to be at HR in Atari at this period of time when a company is doubling in value every year and is hiring the employees to go with it. Must have been a nightmare. It's almost impossible to do anything except... It's kind of like, you know, the old story about, you know, riding the tiger where, you know, you get on the tiger's back and then you can't get off. So you're just trying to hang on for dear life. You don't have time to take stock of the situation and try to take control of the situation. All you have time for is to not fall off and die. It's kind of like that. Atari almost doesn't have time to take stock of what they already have and what they need to retain from what they already have because they're so busy adding to it. No time for self-reflection. No time for self-evaluation. Too busy ascending. Right. And so that's not to in any way exonerate, because that was kind of the first chink in the armor, letting all of these people walk off for two reasons. First of all, they created their competition. Once everyone realized that Activision was able to do this and was able to do this legally, reverse engineer the system and create product for the system and not be blocked by Atari's patents or trademarks or copyrights or whatever else, that opened the floodgate to all of this additional competition. But it also meant that they lost their best programming talent. And so at the critical moment when they needed their absolute best games to keep ahead of the competition in 1982, they didn't necessarily have the best people anymore on their games. And so their games didn't necessarily stand out in the way that they would have if people like David Crane and Brad Stewart and Rob Fulop and Alan Miller, who were so good at programming that VCS, were still at the company. That was a problem. That was a mistake. And that was a mistake of Atari management. We just want to put that mistake in the context of the times and the bigger picture. All right. So that's Atari's management having problems causing this stuff to collapse. Where do we want to put engineering's fault? We already discussed, of course, how they were not able to do a console transition. That was a big part of what we discussed in the last episode. Right. We had this problem where you had the PC guys and you had the console guys, they're stealing from each other. They have this secrecy back and forth. They have this rivalry going on. And some of that's from management going, hey, we, I only want the best one to survive. They both think one or the other of the departments are going to be knocked off at some point. So they're constantly fighting each other. There was also a disconnect in the R&D portion of the company. R&D had been run since they first created an R&D division, by Al Alcorn, the creator of Pong. Al Alcorn left the company in 1981 due to Ray Kassar refusing to put into production a product that he really wanted to do called Cosmos. Cosmos was a desktop kind of, I don't think it used LEDs, but it was kind of like the LED handheld games that had been coming out in the late 70s and early 80s that we discussed. We talked about it before. I think the Atari brand actually, there's something in the show notes where I pulled up the Cosmos handheld. Mm -hmm. He developed this Cosmos thing that used holography. This was when holography was still very, very new. 
and they actually acquired a bunch of the patents and set up their own holography studio. They were using holograms on the system. But the holograms were really a gimmick. They were a visual gimmick. They didn't really affect the gameplay. It was just something that spruced up the screen to make it look cooler. It's kind of like 3D in movies. It's like, does it really change the movie? No, it just makes it look new and different. That's kind of how the holograms were. Well, he really wanted to do this system, and he got orders for the system, but management didn't want to take away from manufacturing the VCS, and Al Alcorn's always been very critical of that. But this is one where I'm going to side with management. Handhelds had been in decline since they reached their peak in 1979-1980. It was not a big business. It was not going to be a big business again. Yeah, could they have sold some Cosmos units based on the novelty value? Oh, sure. They probably could have sold 500000 a million. I mean, they, they'd have sold something. That was not where the market was going to grow. It made a lot more sense for them to keep churning out VCSs at that time and to eventually transition to the next-generation console. But Cosmos wasn't going to be the next-generation console. Cosmos was a sideline. I support management on this one. People are fond of the what-ifs with the Cosmos because just the holograms and everything were so cool. That wasn't going to be the future because these tabletop games were not the future. And the companies that stuck to those tabletop games and never really got into video games like Intex, for instance, was one of them, ran into problems and they ended up not doing very well. So I don't think you can fault Atari management for this one. The fact of the matter is that because this system was not made, Al Alcorn was very upset and he left the company. To replace him, they actually went to a giant of the computer industry, Dr. Alan Kay. Alan Kay is a huge name in personal computing. He worked at Xerox Park, where they were creating the first personal computer, and he was behind the first kind of PDA concepts. He was one of the first people to really want to miniaturize computers, to get a computer that fits in the palm of your hand. He didn't create the smartphone. He wasn't even involved in that in any way. But the idea of the kind of computer that eventually led to the smartphone, that concept kind of all goes back to Alan Kay. He's a legend in the computer world. Atari actually hired him. He was always very big on coming up with the next big thing years and years down the line. The kind of R&D he wanted to do at Atari was stuff that was 10 years away or more. Ray Kassar really wanted R&D to come up with products that would be usable within five years or so. Now, he still wanted this to be a more advanced R&D operation than the people that are just coming up with the thing that's going to come out next year. There was kind of a disconnect between how R&D was run by the person in charge of it and how the company saw R&D. And I think that this probably contributed in a way to Atari not having product ready to go in the 82, 83, 84 time period because R&D was not interested in doing something that short term. Interestingly, a lot of the early virtual reality stuff, a lot of it, was developed by people who came out of Atari. Atari was doing virtual reality research back here under Alan Kay in the early 1980s. And a lot of the very early virtual reality pioneers were working on VR at Atari. So, I mean, there's exciting things going on in R&D, but there was just a disconnect between what R&D wanted to do and what management wanted R&D to do. And they didn't really have anyone working on midterm R&D projects, probably, in the way that they needed to. I mean, there was R&D work going on. They had some advanced 16-bit computer designs going, and they had some of the virtual reality stuff going and whatever, but it wasn't a happy fit. And Alan Kay has 
said that his period at Atari, which really didn't last long, was the least productive period of his entire professional career. It was a mismatch between expectations on both sides of that relationship. So R&D is in a little bit of a turmoil at, at the same time as well. The other thing with the engineers is the programmers that were left on the VCS made very bad choices. Pac-Man is a game that is often very maligned today because it doesn't play very well. It has the flicker, it, it's ugly, it doesn't look like the original game, etc. Todd Fry, the person that programmed that, he decided that the essence of Pac-Man was that it was a two-player game. It was important that Pac-Man be a two-player game. He decided that too many games had black backgrounds. And so he didn't want Pac-Man to have a black background because that was so passe. It was boring, uninteresting, and so many games had it. It wasn't memory constraints. It wasn't cartridge constraints. It wasn't orders from the top. It wasn't anything that caused Pac-Man to be such a poor port, such a poor representation of what the game was. The programmer made the decision. He decided it had to be two players. And because he had to have two players, that ate up a lot of memory that could have been used instead for anti-flicker routines, for instance. It looked so ugly because he decided he didn't want it to have a black background. Well, those are poor design choices. If some of the better designers had still been at Atari, maybe they would have made different design choices. Now, he was forced to use a 4K cartridge instead of an 8K cartridge. 4K was the max that the system could address. But there had been a bank switching technique developed where you're switching between banks of memory on the fly, and so you could actually use an 8K cartridge and only access 4K blocks, you know, one 4K block at a time to get more memory. Yeah, if he had been allowed to use an 8K cartridge, he could have made a better game even using some of the constraints that he put upon himself, like keeping it two players. But he could have done better on a 4K cartridge if he had realized that the essence of Pac-Man was, was not that it was two players. It was your Mr. Eat Everything in Sight. Right. E.T. Everyone's favorite punching bag. I mean, E.T. was going to be a disaster no matter what, because Howard Scott Warshaw had six weeks to do it, and that's impossible. But he chose to make it a fairly complex adventure game. He chose to do a complex game design in a six-week period, when he could have adapted mechanics that already existed someplace else, adapted something they already had, and just slapped. E.T.'s image on it, you know? I mean, that would have felt like a cheaper game. It would have felt like a cop-out, and it still wouldn't have been a good game. Maybe he could have maybe could have been a little better in six weeks than what he came up with. I mean, it's amazing that he even finished the game that he did in six weeks, but there was no time to fine-tune it, no time to make it better. So, I mean, the engineers, I really think that there was just a diminishing of the engineering talent at the company over time because so many of the best engineers left. So many of the best programmers left to form their own companies. That really would sum it up for engineering. Returning to 1982, at this point, Atari should have a new system on the market, and they do in the form of the 5200. But it's too little too late because of the internal difficulties that we discussed in the previous episode. They have a distribution system that is an absolute mess with competing territories and competing orders and competing everything. They have a strong need to continue growing at a very rapid pace to keep their bosses at Warner happy. So they have to project aggressively, and they have to produce and sell product aggressively to maintain the numbers that Warner wants them to maintain. 
this all comes to a head as 1982 develops. At the beginning of the year, they have Pac-Man. Pac-Man's officially released at the beginning of April. A few units probably start trickling out in the last week of March or so. Games didn't have street dates at the time the way they do today. It was huge. It was a huge seller. We were just talking about how poorly it's looked upon today as such an inferior port. And it is, but the fact of the matter is at the time, it was a huge seller. It was a huge success. There's been a movement for a couple of decades now, quite frankly, it's not a new movement, to say that Pac-Man, even though it sold 7, 8 million copies, was a failure because they manufactured more units than people had Atari VCS systems. That's the rumor. That's nonsense. I don't know exactly how that got started. I think it's because Stephen Kent, in his Ultimate History video games, he interviewed Ray Kassar, and Ray Kassar told him that they shipped 12 million Pac-Mans. And contemporary sources to the events said that Atari sold 7 million Pac-Mans in 1982. My guess, and this is just a guess, but my guess is that Stephen Kent took both numbers at face value, subtracted 7 million from 12 million, and came up with 6 million unsold Pac-Man cartridges. There were only about 10 million VCSs in North America at the time, so if you ship 12 million and there are only 10 million consoles, you've shipped more units than there are consoles. That's the only way I can think of that this ever came into being, because that is nonsense. Because of that statement, I have asked every important person I talked to. I asked CFO Dennis Groff. I asked CEO Ray Kassar. I asked Consumer Division President Michael Moon. Did you produce more Pac-Man cartridges than there were VCS systems? And obviously, they're talking 30 years after the fact, yada, 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 but they all said, no way. Again, it would have required them to take complete leave of their senses because the most successful game ever at that point was Space Invaders. The tie ratio of Space Invaders to VCS consoles was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. 40% of VCS owners owned Space Invaders. Okay, so Pac-Man was a bigger game in the arcade than Space Invaders. That's fine. But are all of Atari's marketing people going to suddenly decide that they can sell more Pac-Man cartridges than there are VCS systems when past performance shows that even your hottest game isn't going to be sold to 50% of your customers? Doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's not impossible that it could happen, but you basically have to assume that everyone at Atari collectively lost their mind. And any time that you have to assume that everybody at a company that is at least semi-decently managed has suddenly collectively lost their minds, your premise is probably not a very good premise. So where does this come from? In, in addition to the, what I mentioned there about Kassar saying 12 million and 7 million sold, there are a couple of things probably going on. First of all, they were planning to make Pac-Man the new bundled game with new VCS systems. So some of what they manufactured was not to sell in the consumer marketplace, but was to bundle with future Atari systems that they were going to sell. Even if they did manufacture more units than they thought that they could sell in public, it was probably for those VCS systems that they planned to sell. Second of all, that 7 million figure is for the United States, as far as I know. That's what they were selling in North America. And that 10 million systems was what they had in North America. 
Europe was not as big a market, not near as big a market as the United States, but there were VCS systems in Europe. And they were going to be selling Pac-Man in Europe. They weren't just going to be selling it in the United States. I'm not saying they shipped 6 million units to Europe. I'm, I'm sure they didn't, because I don't think there were 6 million VCSs in Europe. But the point is, they probably sold more than 7 million units, because I think that's only North America, and you have to take into account what they sold around the rest of the world, too, even if that was only a couple million total. The other thing is, is that these are numbers people are trying to remember years after the fact. And Ray Kassar could simply be wrong that they shipped 12 million units. I mean, that just could be a bad number. I wouldn't pay too much attention to the numbers here. I would just assume that Atari is not going to be stupid enough to make more cartridges than there are systems. And certainly everyone I've talked to at the company says that there's absolutely no way they did any such thing. And of course there's no way they did any such thing. Atari is often depicted as a company that completely lost its mind and just started doing crazy things because they were arrogant. There are some things that they probably did because they were arrogant. They probably did produce more than they should have because they didn't understand that they had competition in the marketplace. They did throw their weight around, but they didn't just completely lose it. <laughs> they weren't going around manufacturing 12 million copies of a game when there were 10 million people that could buy it. I mean, no. That's the level of incompetency that you have to go to school for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the entire management team would have been fired on the spot if they did that. I mean, obviously, Ray Kassar is going to eventually get fired here, but <laughs> he'd have been fired on the spot if he did something like that. I mean, that's just loony. So Pac-Man is actually a big hit. They have a very good first quarter of 1982 because of Pac-Man. Second quarter of 1982, they end up having to back off their projections a little bit. It's still a better quarter than second quarter 1981, but they ended up having to back off their projections, their informal projections a bit, because they are starting to slow down. There is more competition in the marketplace. It turns out that distributors are unable to accept all of the games that they're making because demand is finally catching up to supply. So even though they have a good second quarter, it's under what they said it was going to be. And the stock takes a hit for it. It doesn't take a gigantic hit. It doesn't just suddenly crash. But the stock takes a hit for it. The market likes consistency. Right. And Steve Ross is not happy. For the third quarter, they have to make sure that they have a record-setting quarter. The edict, basically, from Warner is, have yourself a record-setting quarter to get this sorted back out again. So they do two things. First, they get Kmart to take an order that Kmart didn't really want to take at that time. They sold more into the market. At this time, Atari had a no-returns policy, a strict no-returns policy. So they didn't have to wait for sell-through to book something as a profit. They booked it as a profit as soon as they sold it into the channel, as soon as that order was taken because they weren't going to accept any of that product back. So even though the retailer had terms and wasn't necessarily giving them all the money right away, they could book that order as a sale and book that order as revenue at the time that they make the order. So they make Kmart take an order that kind of pushes them over the top. Because of the way the calendar works, every so often a company has a 53-week year, fiscal year. I don't know if that's to balance out leap years, or I, I'm not an accountant. I don't know exactly why that happens. But the important thing is that every so often, a company will have a 53-week year. 
you put that 53rd week in the fourth quarter, you tack it on. Warner told Atari to put that 53rd week, that extra week in the third quarter. Ooh. It was legal. It was just highly unusual. But that gave them an extra week of sales, an extra week of revenue. Mm-hmm. So the combination of that Kmart order and the extra week made the third quarter a record quarter. And so Warner stock's going back up. Steve Ross is happy again. So they have that record quarter. Well, by doing that, by advancing their orders and by sticking that week on there, they basically now shot their wad for the year. The fourth quarter, in order to be big at this point, needs their two big movie licenses to really hit big in that fourth quarter. Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. The E.T. story is pretty well known. We won't dwell on it in this episode. Basically, Steve Ross wanted Steven Spielberg to come to Warner. He wanted Steven Spielberg to break with his long-standing relationship with Universal Pictures and come make movies for Warner Brothers. So Steve Ross was doing everything within his power to get Spielberg into the Warner camp. And one of those things was giving him a ridiculous licensing deal, $21 million, for E.T., and guaranteeing him that the E.T. game would be out Christmas, 1982. This was all Steve Ross is doing. Atari had pursued the E.T. license because E.T. was the hit in 1982, but Skip Paul, their lawyer, had only offered $1 million, which was still more than the company usually offered, but was more in line with what the company usually offered. Ross is the one that did $21 million. Ross is the one that insisted that it had to be out of Christmas. And so because of that, that's why they only had six weeks to make the game. Because this deal's consummated in the summer, and because of the way cartridge manufacturing works, you have to have the game locked a good five or six months before it's actually coming out. That left them only six weeks to design the game. So this goes to laying the entire E.T. fiasco, 90%, if not more of that, really at Warner's feet. And specifically, Ross's feet. Absolutely. And that's very clear. So I was talking about how Warshaw could have maybe tried to do a simpler game, and he could have, but nothing he did was going to be great in six weeks. You can't blame Warshaw for the fact that the game is so terrible. Maybe he could have made a game a little better if he hadn't tried to make this complex adventure game where you're gathering pieces and falling into holes and all of this stuff. He was never going to make a great game in six weeks. Nobody was. I mean, even one of the great, even David Crane or, or Rob Fulop or one of the great programmers that had left Atari was not going to make a great game in six weeks. Obviously, E.T. is a disaster, but Raiders is also done by Howard Scott Warshaw. It's a finished game. It's a polished game. It's not like E.T. where it's just broken, but it's a very difficult and very finicky game. You have to use both joysticks because this is the first console adventure game where you actually have an inventory. He loved Warren Robinette's adventure. The console adventure, as opposed to the text adventure adventure, was the first console adventure game. But you could only hold one item at a time. There were several items you had to collect, but you could only hold one at a time. Warshaw was enamored with that game. He wanted to do an adventure game, but he wanted it so you could have an inventory, like in a real text adventure. And so to do that, he actually had the second joystick be your inventory control. That's how he got away with that. But there were certain places where you had to switch between inventory items rapidly. And so you're kind of, you know, trying to juggle both joysticks and do this. And a lot of the gameplay is hard. A lot of the puzzles are finicky. 
it's a difficult game. It's really too difficult to be a mass market VCS success. He kind of misjudged what would work in the market. So ET is an utter disaster. They make like four or five million of them because they have to make that many just to turn a profit on the darn thing because they've promised 21 million up front. Raiders is not nearly as big a disaster as E.T., but because it's such a difficult and finicky game, it also doesn't do gangbusters. It might have done a million or so units. They needed it to do more than that. E.T., they ship four or five million units. They probably only sell a million or so of them, and then half of those come back from people that are unhappy with the game because it's such a ruddy game. So E.T. is an unmitigated disaster. Raiders of the Lost Ark's not a disaster, but it's not a hit. Those were the games that they needed for their fourth quarter. Those were the big releases of the fourth quarter. And neither one of them are hits. There's a movement to downplay E.T.'s role. And this movement is a backlash against a previous movement to overplay E.T.'s role. Hmm. So it used to be people would say that E.T. was the worst game of all time and was the primary cause of the crash. That's saying too much. It was a bad game. May have even been the worst game Atari itself put out, but it was nowhere near the worst game on the VCS because you had all of these fly-by-night companies that were putting out some truly, truly bad product. It was a factor in the crash, but of course it didn't single-handedly cause the crash. The oversaturation of the market and the distribution situation was a far worse problem than anything that E.T. was causing. But the idea that E.T. didn't play a role in Atari's downfall or in the crash is equally nonsensical. And here's the thing that's very interesting. I've talked to so many people from this time period now, and I'm not just talking about Atari people. I mean, yes, I've talked to Ray Kassar, and I've talked to Michael Moon, and I've talked to these guys that I've mentioned before. I've also talked to Activision CEO Jim Levy. I've talked to Imagic CEO Bill Grubb. I've talked to Richard Stearns, who is at Parker Brothers. I've talked to a lot of people from this time period. Every last one of them brings up E.T., unprompted. They bring it up before I can mention it. Every last one of them, when they talk about the crash, they specifically bring up E.T. without ever being prompted. Now, could some of that be just them buying into the popular narrative? Possibly, but I doubt most of them are really paying much attention to the video game history books that have been written, especially since virtually none of them were interviewed for any of those books. It shows how large E.T. loomed over the situation at the time. It doesn't go to the numbers, but it goes to the psychology. E.T. would not have become that big a bugaboo if it didn't play a role. That doesn't mean its role hasn't been exaggerated, but it doesn't get remembered by that many people that significantly if it hadn't loomed large at the time this was all happening. Makes sense. And it was important because... The final thing that sinks Atari is the fact that they have to announce that not only is their growth for the year in profits only going to be 10 to 15% instead of 50%, but fourth quarter 1982 is going to be worse than fourth quarter 1981. This is the first time in years that Warner is going to report a worse quarter than the comparable period of the year before. That's huge. And why did they not have a better quarter in 1982 than 1981? 
because the games they were selling in the fourth quarter did not sell in sufficient quantities to give them a world-beating quarter. And what was the big game that 1982 was banked on? Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And E.T. So that means its role was pretty significant. Should they have put all of their eggs on E.T. into the basket of E.T.? No, they probably shouldn't have. Is the fact that distribution was so messed up and that there was so much product in the channel a big part of the reason that they couldn't sell the number of units that they needed to sell? Absolutely. Did they forecast too aggressively, which meant that they quite simply had to sell way more product than they realistically could? And so even if ET hadn't been a sales disaster, they may have still missed their fourth quarter targets. Absolutely. Because we are not pinning Atari's entire downfall on ET. We are certainly not doing that. There's all those factors in play. But is the fact that E.T. did not sell well and that Atari was forced to give so much money to Steven Spielberg in advance for the rights to that game a big part of why Atari missed its fourth quarter and therefore began a plunge in the stock market? Absolutely. So let's not rehabilitate E.T. all the way. Let's not take E.T. out of the equation here. E.T. is a significant player in what happened to ruin Atari's fourth quarter, even though you have to acknowledge that market saturation and distribution difficulties and aggressive forecasting played as big, if not a bigger role. I like to view it as the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm Mm-hmm. You had the distribution problem. You had all these other problems going on. You just needed something to topple the thing over. And really, E.T. Invaders is that straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. And I think that's why it looms so large. It's easy to point to E.T. because it was the product that was there at the time things went south. So again, that's the psychology of it. I don't mean to imply that because all of those people remembered so vividly that it had to be a prime cause, but why does it loom so large in the minds of all those people? Well, it has to be because it was the easy target, the easy thing to latch onto at the exact time everything went south. 1982 is a profitable year still. They did make a profit, and they even made a profit that was slightly bigger than the profit they made the year before. But the problem was, A, for the first time in years, fourth quarter is worse than the comparable reporting period in the previous fiscal year. In addition to that, Atari was still telling people up until a day or two before they made their announcement that they were still on target to hit their growth. So market confidence is completely shattered at this point. Because not only has Warner stumbled, but they looked really bad doing it. So now the stock starts to go into freefall. Market's selling because they think that this is perhaps the beginning of the end. And then the returns start and the dumping starts. Because now that the holiday season is over, there is inventory left on store shelves that just didn't move because the market's saturated. All throughout the year, Atari has been manufacturing more units than the market can bear. And so there has been inventory building up in warehouses at Atari that they have not been able to sell through because they've been basing market demand on distributor orders, on retailer orders. 
but these retailers throughout the year, as they realize that their market is saturated and that they have enough material now, are canceling these orders before the product actually ships. Okay, but once they have it, they're stuck with it because Atari has that no returns policy you mentioned earlier. Right, Atari does, but the market is so saturated and retailers are so unhappy that they do have to end up eating some of that product. It's all fine and good to have a no returns policy when your product's doing well, and your product's not doing well. (laughs) And the thing is, their product is backing up in warehouses, like I said, because retailers and distributors have been canceling orders. Atari decides to reform its system and get rid of a bunch of sales reps. Consolidate down, get rid of the competing territories, etc. Because they've got a mess on their hands and they've got this unsold inventory and it's just bad. So they cut a large portion of their reps, but they don't take the software back from them first. They don't buy it back or whatever. They can't really afford to because they've already got hundreds of thousands of units in their warehouses. They can't afford to take hundreds of thousands more units from sales reps. So what do they do when they get cut loose by Atari? Sell, sell, sell. They dump the product. That's what really starts the market flood. I mean, the market was already starting to flood from oversaturation before, but once the sales reps that have been cut loose just dump it all into the market in 1983, that's the death knell of the cartridge market for the VCS. And we talked in the crash then about how you get down to $20, $10, $5, A dollar! Yeah. Three for five dollars. You know, I mean, nobody can make any profit on new games anymore because if you can buy five games in the discount bin for the cost of one game when you're a parent that doesn't really understand this stuff, you feel like a hero when you can bring home little Johnny five games. And little Johnny may care a little bit, but he probably doesn't know enough about the new great games coming out. Can't check them out on YouTube. (laughs) So he just plays what he's given, and there you go. It it destroys the value of the market. Now all of that profit that they had built up through booking those orders in 1982 is all coming back home to roost in 1983 because they're having to write off inventory they didn't manage to sell. They're sometimes having to refund distributors for product that the distributors, the sales reps, didn't sell. This is why they go so quickly from showing a profit to having a $500 million loss. It's because this problem was building, but they didn't have to address it from an accounting standpoint in 1982. They could constantly kick the problem down the road. Right, from an accounting standpoint. Now they finally can't anymore. And so they lose $500 million in that 1983 fiscal year, and Ray Kassar is fired. Even before he's fired, he's basically lost control. This is the period when Warner really starts meddling in the company. This is something that hasn't been reported very much because Ray Kassar himself had not in the past really talked about it. And he didn't go into a great amount of detail on it with me either. Steve Ross loved the glamour of the movie business. Where he was focusing his personal attention was that Warner Brothers studio. I mean, Warner had a president that ran it too, but his bandwidth was focused on those glamour businesses. He was not focused on the video game business. But now that the video game business that had been driving his stock 
is now driving his stock in the other direction, he starts paying more attention to it and he starts meddling with it. E.T. was an early example of that. In early 1983, he starts meddling more and he starts being more actively involved. He forces Atari to buy a corporate jet so that he has a jet that he can use. I mean, Warner has a jet too, obviously, but he forces Atari to take a jet because he needs a jet when he's running into Sunnyvale more often to do that. So that's an expense they didn't need that he forces on them. And he's paying more attention and not really letting Ray craft his own response to what's happened. So management is just in a turbulent situation right at the time where they need management to be unified and focused on solving this problem. There's a real disconnect between Atari and Warner. And Warner, because they're the ones with the money, the authority, they are going in there and going, okay, Atari, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing that, and I have no clue what I'm doing. Pretty much. And so there's that element to it. And again, that's not to completely exonerate Ray for what happened, but it is to at least understand that Ray wasn't the only cook in the kitchen here, (laughs) that there's a lot of uh, competing ideas on how to pull out of this, and Atari just can't handle it because they built way too much inventory, and now they can't do anything with it. That's why they do these burials, like the famous burial in New Mexico. The company really falls apart. And so the other thing is, is that Warner hires a consulting firm, because what do you do when a company suddenly is no longer successful? You pay someone to tell you why the company's no longer successful. So the thing with consulting firms is that a consulting firm always needs to leave their stamp on an organization that they come into. So what they decide to do is they tell Atari, you're organized all wrong, which is probably not true. This is just one of those, like, shuffle things that people do just so you, you know, it's rearranging the deck chairs while the Titanic's sinking, as the popular metaphor goes. So right now, Atari is organized into consumer, home computer, coin-off. That's based on product lines. That's product line organization. So the consulting firm decides, no, you should be organized along functional lines instead, because that's the opposite of product lines. It's not because they really needed to be. It's just they needed to do the opposite of something that was already in place. So and some, I need to look important because I'm being paid to do consulting. Right. So in the middle of 1983, Atari reorganizes around functional lines instead of product lines. Coinop is actually kept out of this. Coinop is supposed to be integrated as well, but Coinop basically throws a fit and refuses to be a part of it. And since Coinop, even though they're not doing as well now due to the arcade downturn that we've discussed in the crash episode, they're still not the ones hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of dollars. So when they throw a fit, they're basically left alone. But the home computer and consumer divisions are reorganized into three companies, three subsidiaries, I mean. Atari Products Company, which is the company responsible for developing all of the product across those two product categories. Atari Sales Company, which is responsible for selling all of that product across those different products. And Atari Manufacturing Company, which is responsible for building it. So instead of product lines, consoles, home computers, it's functional lines, development, sales, manufacturing. So this is a kind of worthless change, worthless disruption of everything. At a time when Atari needs to be figuring out how to recover, they're being asked to go into a completely new organizational structure. 
I mean, functionally, is it that different from what they were before? Maybe not, but still, it's it's a level of confusion that they probably don't need at this time. They're trying to shift manufacturing overseas now. They'd already done a little, but they're trying to really shift overseas now because that's cheaper and they need to save money. And they're trying to handle all this product return and get new product out. And it's just, it's chaos. It's a mess. And, and then they let Ray Casar go in July because of the huge loss that the company posts. But then they don't have anyone ready to replace him. After they fire him, ask Ray Kassar to come back and stay on just until they can find a replacement. And of course, Ray Kassar says no. You just fired me. Yeah. That's how haphazard the Warner response was, is that they fired him before they even stopped long enough to think about what they would do when he was gone. They didn't fire him and say, could you stay on for a few months while we look for a replacement? No, they had him out the door and then sometime later said, oh, by the way, could you come back just for a little while until we find your replacement? Let me consider my options here. I'm going to go with this one as my option. And for those looking at the camera, you can probably guess what I'm doing. (laughs) Right. They're completely unprepared. Manny Gerard comes in to run it directly until they can get a replacement. I mean, he was always overseeing it from the Warner end, but now he's actually going to run it directly. This is a period of time when more than ever, Atari probably needs to transition into home computers if they're going to make anything happen. And at that exact moment, the person placed in charge of the company is a person that never believed in the home computer product line. So they've been kind of trying to update the home computer line. It hasn't gone well. They released an update to the 8-bit computer line, the, the 1200, and it doesn't do well for a variety of reasons. And they're doing R&D work on the next group of 8-bit computers that'll come out even after that. There's definitely less impetus on updating the computer line now that there's people in charge that aren't interested so much in home computers. So that's a little bit of a problem the man they finally choose to hire to replace Ray Kassar is a fellow named James Morgan. James Morgan is a vice president at Philip Morris, the tobacco company. It's amazing that he decided to take the Atari job. He was considered to be on the fast track to running all of Philip Morris one day. And in fact, after his little Atari dalliance is over, he goes back to Philip Morris and then does run Philip Morris one day, just in time for the lawsuits in which it was revealed that all the tobacco companies had information on the health hazards of cigarettes that they kept from the public. And so, yeah, most people that know James Morgan know him as the guy that keeps having to come in front of Congress and testify. (laughs) James Morgan has never been interviewed about his Atari days. A, he was there so briefly, and it was such an unhappy period, he may not be interested in talking about it, but B, he probably assumes that Anyone who even asks him for an interview is going to ambush him with questions about why the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies, decided to hide the fact that they were killing everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Why he would leave Philip Morris when he was on the fast track there, I don't know. I mean, someone would have to ask him, and so far he's not willing to talk. But they convince him to come and run the company, and I'm not sure why they wanted him, because tobacco is a slow-moving business. It's a stately old business. Product doesn't change that rapidly, and when product does change, it's putting a new filter on the cigarette or something. I mean, it doesn't change much. 
We're talking men with smoking jackets in dark room. That's right. It's it's not a fast-moving business. James Morgan really doesn't move fast enough. After he's hired, I think he's hired in August, maybe September. I can't remember off the top of my head. I could look it up, but it really doesn't matter. He takes a, a month vacation before he even shows up. You know, he wants a month to probably get his affairs in order. I mean, when I say a vacation, I don't think he was sitting on a beach for a month. I think he wanted a month to tie up, wrap up his affairs and get moved across the country and, and all of that. But the point is, they don't have him there as a leader for a month. And then when he gets there, he orders a freeze on products while he evaluates the product line. And we talked about before how this was basically ruined their last chance to get into home computers effectively because they really needed to get their new 8-bit computers out and heavily promoted in Christmas 1983 to compete with the Commodore 64, and they didn't. And so the Commodore 64 just dominates the market and the rest is history. By 1984, it's it's too late <laughs> to challenge the Commodore 64. Commodore is now a billion-dollar company and the talk of the town, and it's, it's too late. Now, with the ambivalence that Atari had always shown towards the computers, even if Morgan hadn't come in and that hadn't happened, would they have aggressively pushed their computers? Maybe not. I mean, maybe that didn't make a difference. But the fact of the matter is, is... You didn't door help was, the situation. Yeah, the door was closed on getting a solid foothold in the home computer market once they didn't compete effectively against Commodore in 1983. Morgan, probably at the urging of Gerard, though I don't know that for sure, I mean, no one's talked to Morgan, decides to refocus the company on the video game business. A company called General Computer Corporation that had created the game Ms. Pac-Man in the arcade and had been doing some development for Atari became interested in making a home console and so started their own work on a new home console system and then sold the concept directly to Warner. They didn't go through Atari. They went through Warner. And I think that shows two things. First, it shows that, yes, Warner is becoming more actively involved in what's going on with Atari because Warner didn't tell GCC, no, go talk to Ray about that. They said, do the deal with us. And B, it also shows that Warner seems to be more interested in advancing the console market than the, the computer market, at least at this period of time. They've been working on a product that becomes the Atari 7800 on a contract directly for Warner. At the same time, there's a, a little company in Japan that's getting ready to release a console in their home country that wants to expand into the United States. And so they've been holding talks with Atari, too. That company is called Nintendo. Atari actually had a chance to market the NES in North America in 1983. It doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. The, the deal isn't that favorable to Atari. There's a kerfluffle over the home computer rights to Donkey Kong that stalls talks for a while. Then Ray Kassar is fired, which basically takes the talks back to zero. Plus, the 7800 is being developed at the same time, and a lot of people in Atari are in favor of going with that product instead of the Nintendo product. But it's an interesting footnote that that almost happened. The 7800 now, though, is just about ready. It's going to be ready for a launch in 1984. And James Morgan decides to essentially bet the company on that 7800 product. Everyone in the analyst community says that Atari is absolutely nuts to try that. Video games at this point are considered dead. 
I mean, it's just a dead category because it's been discounted to high heaven and everyone's losing money and everyone's getting out and this is not going to work. So Atari is essentially being laughed at for even considering doing a console. So this does nothing to assuage analyst fears. This does nothing to help the Warner stock price. The company is still losing significant money every quarter, despite moving manufacturing overseas, despite multiple rounds of layoffs. Warner Communications now, because the stock is doing so poorly, becomes a takeover target. Rupert Murdoch, the Australian news magnate, who we know today, of course, for buying Fox and starting Fox News and all of that stuff. At this time, he doesn't own Fox yet. This is the time when he's still looking to buy into a major American media company. He doesn't have one yet. He tries a hostile takeover of Warner Communications because the stock is doing so poorly. At the same time, Morgan is trying to reintroduce video games with a product that analysts say nobody wants, the Atari 7800, gets a limited test release in early 84, and he's trying to create a leaner, meaner Atari. He comes up with a plan to essentially create a company within a company and transfer certain employees over a period of months into this new company and then lay off everybody else that isn't transitioned into the new company from the old company, and then that's going to be the new Atari. That's going to be the most expedient way to make it leaner and meaner, and then they're going to focus on the 7800 product, and they're going to bring back video games in 1984. Would it have worked? Maybe. I don't know. It was a better product. I mean, the 7800 is the system that finally came out in the late 80s that competed with Nintendo. It was certainly a better product than the VCS. It was a better product than the 5200. It had backwards compatibility with the VCS, unlike the 5200. So if you had a library of Atari cartridges, you could go ahead and play those right away. It didn't really have a lot of new ideas in games. We have to remember that the arcade market is falling apart at this period of time, so there haven't really been any big new hits introduced in the arcade that can be converted over to these systems. Uh, There are a couple, but there aren't many, so a lot of what's being released on the 7800 is just enhanced versions of games that had already been released on the 2600. A better version of Pac-Man, a better version of Galaga, a better version of this and that, you know. So that's maybe not exciting. It would be hard for it to break through the noise of all the discounted product. I mean, 84 may have been too soon for anything to bust through. They'd never get a chance to try, because Warner could no longer afford to wait. Selling Atari was now vital for the continued independence of Warner Communications, because they had to get that stock price back up, and Atari is what's depressing the stock price. So that's why in late June or early July of 1984, Warner contacts Jack Trammell, who had recently resigned from Commodore in disputes with Irving Gould, the chairman and largest shareholder, on how to run the company and what the future of the company should be, and asked him if he'd take Atari. They had been trying for a few months before that to sell it to Philips, the European electronics conglomerate. Philips had kind of been willing to do a 50-50 thing with Warner, where they each owned half of Atari, but they weren't willing to buy the whole thing. They didn't think that was a good investment. So they had been trying Philips for a while, and Philips just fell through completely, and so then they turned to Jack Trammell. 
at this point, Jack Trammell was very interested in getting back into the business because he feared that Japanese companies were going to enter the home computer market and were going to take over the home computer market. We discussed this before in a previous episode as well, and had already founded his own kind of startup seed company, uh, Trammell Technology Limited, and was looking to re-enter the market, was looking for technology to do that. And so Warner called him up and just asked him if he would take Atari off their hands, the, the home computer and console portions of Atari, not coin-op. So they negotiate over the 4th of July weekend, and they get a deal in place. Warner sells it to Trammell basically for nothing up front. I mean, they basically sell it for debt. <laughs> they don't take any cash from Trammell. The first that James Morgan knows this is happening is when he's called in to sign the papers. I mean, he's not part of the negotiations. Warner is entirely running this show, and so at the beginning of July, they sell these new Atari Products Company, Atari Manufacturing Company, Atari Sales Company, these units, to Jack Trammell. And they keep a hold of the arcade part of the company, Warner does, and they keep a hold. There's a division called Atari Tell that's working on this kind of video phone thing. They keep a hold of that, too, though they close it down soon after. They just get rid of all of this stuff that's dragging the company down. That's it for Atari. At that point, Jack Trammell renames his Trammell Technologies Limited Atari Corporation. That becomes the new Atari in the home, and the arcade is Atari Games, as we discussed in our Atari brand episode, and then that goes on itself. That's the end of Atari. Obviously, Atari continues to exist in, in these successor companies that have pieces of the whole thing, but this is the last time that the company founded by Nolan Bushnell back in 1972 with Ted Dabney is whole as as one entity. It's been broken up now. The, the classic Atari Incorporated is now gone. Sad to see it fall. Yeah, I mean, Atari is a company that, that had problems. I mean, people are nostalgic for it. People that grew up with the Atari are nostalgic for it, just like people of our generation are often very nostalgic for Nintendo, because just like in our day, you didn't play video games, you played Nintendo. In those days, you didn't play video games, you played Atari. It had a profound effect in that sense, but it was a company that really couldn't sustain itself in the way it was. It grew too big too fast. It was pressured by its parent company to grow too big too fast. As the market changed, they were unable to turn the ship and do what they needed to do. They they missed the hardware transition that they should have done in 81 or 82. They missed the signs that they were oversaturating the market with product and they were their own worst enemy they were really in 83 they really were they really were and so atari doesn't have anyone to blame but itself or warner but <laughs> it's part of the warner companies I, I don't think it's fair to put that all on ray i don't think ray was the biggest problem that sunk atari i don't think marketing and management were the biggest problems that sunk atari I think everyone had a role to play. I don't think Atari fails unless you have all of that together. The the distribution problems, the market saturation problems, the aggressive projections problems, and the Warner just pushing everything to greater and greater heights problems. So hopefully uh, through this podcast, you can kind of see how there was plenty of blame to go around on the, the fall of Atari. I can certainly see that. 
So that pretty much covers all of Atari. At least all we're going to probably talk about Atari for this year. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, we glossed over some of what was happening in home computers and some of what was happening in coin-op because the consumer part of it came to, to be such a huge deal. So did we tell the entire Atari story from beginning to finish? No, we, we did not. That would take even more ridiculous amounts of time. But at the very least, we kind of charted the factors that played into its rise and we charted the factors that played into its fall. And you kind of get the overall picture of how the company that became the fastest growing company in America could then suddenly lose everything it had gained in such a short period of time. And if you want more about the Great Crash, feel free to check out that big three-parter episode from last year. That's right. And uh, if you listen to all seven of those episodes in close proximity to each other, you are really into this video game history stuff, I must say. Because <laughs> that is a lot. But, yes. but I think that some of these subjects deserve deep dives just because, not only because they were so important, but because they have been discussed so superficially and often without a lot of good research backing it up. And so there are certain topics that need that level of depth of examination because they're complex and because there's a lot more to say on them than than anyone has ever really said before. There's a lot of popular mysticism around whatever people would just say. They go, oh yeah, Atari caused the crash. It was because of VT. Right. That's the common narrative. And what I think we really discussed over these four episodes and the crash episode, it's not just ET and Atari management losing its mind. Hopefully right. we've really conveyed that it's not all Ray Kassar's fault. It's not all engineering fault, much as I would love to blame Warner. It's not all Warner's fault. No. <laughs> There's a lot more shared blame. There's a lot more nuances. And I think that's something that we really convey to everyone is there's a lot more nuance to history than just a black and white good versus evil, yay, good guys, boo, bad guys right. thing. There's a lot more blame out there. There's a lot more hands in the pot, cooks in the kitchen. Any metaphor you like. However, Insert you your favorite here. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you have enjoyed this four-part section. And we will see you next time when we discuss some other topic. Well, this time I think uh, we've discussed companies enough for a while. And I think we've, discussed, <laughs> I think we've discussed economics enough for a while. So uh, Put away your notepads. That's right. So let's let's do something a little more fun and a little more lighthearted and a little breezier, a little faster, like racing, like driving. The history of, of racing games, which we talked about how fighting games were often such big system sellers, that they were often the, the showcases that would move a new system. Racing games have never been quite as important in the system seller category, but racing games have almost always been the first place that a lot of new technology is showcased. The first ROMs were used in racing games. The first interlaced video appeared in racing games. Some of the earliest polygonal games were racing games. Some of the earliest textured polygonal games were racing games. It's always been kind of one of these genres that's a technology showcase. So it's kind of interesting to chart all of the games that made a major impact uh, more in the arcade, really, than in the home and helped push 
technology of video gaming forward. So that, that sounds like a, a, a nice lighter topic to, to take on next time. And we will see you next time as we go speeding towards you in They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.